Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. There are few more accomplished, well-known, and influential authors than the Apostle Paul. Whether you love them or hate them, Paul's writings, which we Christians believe aren't really just his, but products of the Holy Spirit's inspiration, have helped shape the world as we know it. With the guidance of Paul's writings, the early church got its footing. The Protestant Reformation was driven by Paul's writings. Abolitionists sometimes cited Paul's writings as they fought against the injustices of slavery. Martin Luther King Jr., a pastor, was surely familiar with Paul. But today we start a journey through what was likely Paul's earliest letter, written somewhere around 50 A.D., The words that we read today are not exactly flowery or poetic, and at times Paul may even come across as angry or harsh. But Paul uses extreme language in the book of Galatians due to the extreme circumstances the Galatians are in. Desperate times call for desperate measures. The stakes are high, and with this letter, Paul draws a clear line in the sand. He does this because he loves the believers in these churches. He loves God. And he rightly recognizes that the preservation of the gospel itself is on the line. And even though we're on the other side of the world, and some 2,000 years further down the timeline of history, believers like us and churches like ours still need Paul's wisdom, still need Paul's warnings just as much as ever. So open up to Galatians chapter 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one to call your own. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the absolutely gorgeous weather outside. Uh, Father, thank you for this time of year where So many of us can get outside and enjoy your creation. I pray that all of us at one point or another would get the opportunity to do that, maybe even today. Thank you for the gifts of your grace that you give us that we so often take for granted, uh, the little things of life. And of course, thank you for the privilege of gathering here and worshiping you. Thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you that you call us your children, and that too is all by your grace. Thank you that we have the privilege of remembering what Christ has done for us. Thank you for his broken body and his shed blood. Thank you for his resurrection, and thank you that we look forward to eternal life ourselves. We love you. We praise you. Be with us as we read this letter. Be with us as we read your word. May we be attentive to it. May you give us a desire to know you more and a desire to obey you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start by reading Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Paul met the residents of Galatia early in his ministry, not too long after his dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 9. They may have been some of the earliest people to hear Paul's preaching. So these Christians may have held an especially important place in Paul's heart. The letter is written to multiple small churches, mainly located in the southern region of Galatia, a Roman province. Galatia was a diverse part of the world in terms of ethnicity, religion, and wealth. And as we start the opening verses, Galatians seems like a relatively normal letter from Paul's pen. He affirms his calling from God as an apostle. We'll talk about why that's so important in just a moment. He affirms the death and resurrection of Jesus and our salvation from sin through him. He gives glory to God the Father. It all sounds pretty standard, doesn't it? But then all of a sudden, things turn on a dime in verse 6. We read there, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Usually at this point in Paul's letters, he will give a thanksgiving. Some encouraging comments about how much he loves the Christians that he's writing to and how grateful to God he is for them and how much he prays for them. We see thanksgivings in books like Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's nice, isn't it? Philippians 1, 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, For you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's nice too. And then in Colossians 1, 3 through 5, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. These very nice words from Paul and Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Almost kind of sappy. But then in Galatians, something is very different. Paul skips the thanksgiving entirely and jumps straight into a rebuke. He's clearly not in the mood for flowery, poetic niceties. He's not there to issue courtesies. Paul is here to kick some Galatians' butt. If you're a Harry Potter fan, which I know some of you are, the letter to the Galatians would be the Harry Potter equivalent of a howler. A howler is one of those letters that gets sent to you when you're at school if you did something wrong, and the second you open it up, it yells at you. 
It screams at you. Well, Galatians is a howler. But the question, of course, is, well, what exactly is Paul's problem? What's he so mad about? Well, the problem is that the Galatian churches are being lured away from the one true gospel of grace and being lured into an altogether different gospel. In Paul's mind, this is not an issue that they can agree to disagree upon. This isn't a case of brothers and sisters in Christ not seeing eye to eye on some different but ultimately inconsequential interpretations. This isn't a case of some well-meaning but mistaken teachers accidentally making some harmless doctrinal errors. This isn't the modern-day equivalent of leaving one good church to go to another good church. Paul says that these people are sinister and cunning false teachers. They know what they're doing. They've heard Paul's gospel, they've rejected it, and now come up with their own. They are heretics. And if the Galatians follow these people and follow their teachings, they will end up abandoning the gospel itself. Paul even goes so far as saying that if anyone comes preaching a different gospel than what you've already heard, let that preacher be accursed. Let them be anathema. That's the New Testament way of saying they can go to hell. And if you don't change course, you're going to go with them. Now, if you think this sermon sounds like fire and brimstone, that's because it is. And if you think this sounds like too much fire and brimstone, I'd encourage you to read some of Jesus' sermons. But Paul is laying down the gauntlet with some sharp warnings. Because the danger the Galatians find themselves in is great. And by flirting with these teachings, the Galatians are tap dancing on the edge of a cliff. And before you write Paul off as overly harsh, rigid, or just plain cranky. Look at it this way. We issue warnings to people we love. And the greater the danger, the more urgent and maybe even more rough our warning might be. Imagine you see a child chasing a ball towards a busy intersection. In that moment, you will yell as loud as you can. You will jump up and down. You might even use some words that you don't normally use in polite conversation. You will do anything you have to do to get their attention and keep them out of harm's way. Because in that moment, that's the loving thing to do. It would be incredibly unloving to silently sit back and watch as that child steps in front of a car. That's what Paul is doing here. He is yelling. He is jumping up and down. He is using extreme words to try and wake the Galatians up and keep them from falling into this trap. But then again, why should the Galatians listen to Paul? I mean, maybe he's just overstating the dangers. Maybe he's jealous that he's not the most popular preacher in town anymore. And on top of that, I'm sure these other teachers have some pretty impressive arguments in favor of their gospel instead of Paul's. So why should the Galatians heed Paul's warning? What makes him so right and the other teachers so wrong? 
For remember what Paul said in the opening verses of the book? They should listen to him because he's an apostle called by God. And Paul's gospel is directly from God. We see that in verse 11. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Paul received his calling, and Paul received his message from God himself. On the Damascus road, the risen Christ knocked him off his horse and gave it to him. He didn't make it up, and neither did any other man. He's not just regurgitating something he heard from some random preacher, or even from Peter or James. Paul saw and heard a miraculous revelation. Now, why does Paul seem to brag about his Jewish resume from before he was converted? If you look again at verse 14, Paul reminds them that at one time he was the best Pharisee, the most beautiful Pharisee you've ever seen. He was such a good Pharisee that it would make your head spin. You would not believe it. He was terrific. But Paul mentions his Jewish pedigree to illustrate the point that if he of all people was converted by this gospel, then it must be a work of God. A guy like Paul doesn't get converted by some counterfeit gospel made up by men. A guy like Paul doesn't get converted by some made-up story. Paul was converted by a revelation from God himself. And Paul's calling is from God. And Paul's gospel is from God. Picking up in verse 18, Paul says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for fifteen days. Cephas, another name for Peter. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, 
To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So shortly after Paul's conversion, he says he went to visit Peter and James in Jerusalem, two of the three pillars of the early church in that town. Now there's lots of debate about how to reconcile Paul's account in Galatians with the timeline in the book of Acts. That's a conversation that I'd be happy to have if you're interested, but it didn't quite make the cut for today's sermon. But the aftermath of that first trip to Jerusalem is made clear in verses 23 and 24. People were saying, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of him. Now from there, Paul goes on to do immensely fruitful ministry in places like Galatia. But then later, Paul would come back to Jerusalem again. But on that visit many years later, it's not just to get to know Peter and James. It's to sort out some tension, to walk through some disagreement. False brothers were questioning Paul's credibility as an apostle and the validity of his message. Now, they were ultimately unsuccessful in undermining Paul, but that doesn't mean they went away. They've made a comeback now, and they're up to their same old tricks in Galatia. Now, thankfully, the apostles in Jerusalem continued to stand firm with Paul. They recognized Paul's desire to preserve the truth of the gospel. They recognized the beauty of his ministry to the Gentiles. They recognized his calling. But now, hopefully, the Galatians will, too. Now, we haven't really even discussed it yet in detail. But what exactly was the false teaching? What was its content? Was it really that bad? Or was Paul just personally offended that these teachers would dare question him? We've seen a few hints of what the false teaching consisted of. Paul briefly mentioned freedom in Christ Jesus, slavery, specific ministry to the Gentiles, and he talked a lot about circumcision. But for more details about what makes this teaching so terrible, you'll have to come back next week when Zach picks up in chapter 2, verse 11. But as we close today, I think we're already left with several important takeaways. We already have plenty to think about. So takeaway number one, there are some doctrines where we simply cannot agree to disagree. The first step in resisting false teaching is acknowledging that there actually is such a thing as false teaching. 
That may sound totally foreign to many people in our day and age, when it's fashionable to argue that there's no such thing as one absolute truth. We have the mentality that we believe what we believe, others can believe what they believe, and under no circumstances should we ever rock the boat by declaring our beliefs right and someone else's beliefs wrong. But before you hear that and accuse Paul of being too closed-minded, remember that he wrote regularly about the need for brothers and sisters in Christ to give each other the benefit of the doubt and disagreements. He wrote a lot about allowing for reasonable differences of opinion and practice within the church. He wrote frequently about the need to seek unity, even though none of us is identical. However, Paul also makes it clear, some teachings are so blatantly false and so flat-out contradictory to the things of God that they compromise the very truth of the gospel. And those teachings have the potential to become their own, standalone, false gospels. And we'd be incredibly naive and even a little arrogant to believe that we're somehow immune to falling for them. We might fall for a new false teaching because it's trendy. We might follow a false teaching because it strokes our egos, it caters to our own sinful passions, or it aligns better with our preconceived notions about how we think God should act. We might even return to a false teaching we held in the past because it's familiar or comfortable. The point is that there are false gospels out there. And they are not mere differences of interpretation or mere differences of opinion. They are deadly. And Paul would caution you away from them. And I would do the same. Now, if that first point is true, that there is such a thing as false teaching, then the second takeaway is this. It logically follows that there are times when we need to warn others And there are times when we need to be warned ourselves. It's the loving thing to do, even though it may not feel like it at the time. The Galatians probably didn't feel a whole lot of love when they first opened this letter. But if Paul didn't love them, he never would have written it. In biblical wisdom literature, there's a long tradition of the value of accepting correction and accepting warning. For example, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And then a few verses later, verse 27. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. If we wouldn't hesitate to warn someone destroying themselves physically, then why wouldn't we warn them from destroying themselves spiritually? May we have the humility to be warned ourselves by brothers and sisters in Christ and accept that instruction, but may we also have the courage to step up and warn each other instead of standing back and silently watching as we run into that busy intersection of false teaching. And then finally, the third takeaway is this. We need constant reminders of the one true gospel. We need to be reminded of the gospel passed down to the apostles. We need to be reminded of the scriptures passed down to Timothy from his mother and his grandmother. 
We need to be reminded of the gospel defended by Paul, proclaimed by the Holy Spirit and the church, and recorded in Scripture. They say the best defense is a good offense. Well, I challenge you to go on the offensive about knowing the gospel. Be intentional about knowing the gospel better to defend against false gospels. Now, on the one hand, we live in a world full of mixed messages, and that makes knowing the truth a challenge. But on the other hand, we have more resources than ever before to educate ourselves in what we believe. We have more resources than ever before to help us discern truth from error. Knowing the real gospel better will help us develop stronger instincts to sniff out false gospels. And as we close, there's no better way to close than one of those reminders of the one true gospel. So what exactly is that gospel? Well, it's what Paul said in the opening verses of the book. That Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age and was raised from the dead, all according to the will of God the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If anyone ever comes to you preaching something different, preaching anything less than that and calling it good news, let him be accursed. If an angel from heaven does it, let them be accursed. If I ever do it, let me be accursed. You stay faithful. Do not yield in submission for a moment to those who would trouble you. Don't yield in submission to those who would distort the truth of the gospel. Hold on to the one true gospel. The gospel sufficient for your salvation. The gospel that has been preserved for you. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the community that we have here. One of the reasons why Christians need the church, one of the reasons why we need each other, is so that we can teach each other and hold each other accountable and encourage each other and warn each other and guide each other toward good paths and protect each other from bad paths. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us as individuals. I pray that you would be with us as a church as we look to be dedicated more every single day to the one true gospel. I pray that you would guard us from false gospels that can be very, very tempting and can be very, very alluring. Father, keep us on the straight and narrow of your truth. Help us fix our eyes on Christ, the Christ contained in Scripture, the Christ that Paul preached, not a Christ of our own invention, a Christ of our own devices. Father, thank you that Jesus lived and died and rose and ascended and will return. As we wait for that return, we will face challenges, we will face hardships, we will face temptations, we will have to discern truth from error. And so, Father, we simply ask that you would help us in this, that we would help each other, that with your spirit and your word and your church at our backs, that we would go on 
discern the truth. Obey it, know it, understand it. Let it soak into our hearts, soak into our minds, and have complete confidence in it, not just in this life, but confidence in it for our eternity as well. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.